0: It's Job chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Jabe with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips.
1: Please do keep Job open at Job 1 and 2 and you'll find just inside your song sheet a handout which gives you an idea of where we're going. Let me introduce you to Gennady Mognenko. I think I'm pronouncing that right. I wonder if you've heard of him. He's a 54-year-old pastor born in Donetsk in Ukraine who planted a church in Mariupol in 1992. Since then, according to reports, he's been a pillar of the local community, working with those who are struggling to deal with poverty in the post-Soviet era. He established a network of rehab centers for adults. He founded the largest rehabilitation program for street youth in the whole of Ukraine and he's even travelled overseas to support missionary work in Africa. His life was captured in a 2016 documentary, Almost Holy. It had uh, Gennady Magnenko presented warts and all. I haven't seen it, but for all his faults, reviews heap praise upon the man, uh, describing him as heroic, a modern-day saint. But exactly six weeks ago, A Russian tank opened fire on an apartment block in Mariupol, in which was living his adopted daughter, Vika, and she was killed. Magnenko's pain-stricken blog concluded with these words, "'Forgive me, daughter, that I could not protect you. I really tried.' What are we to say when confronted with horrific stories like that? As stories that are in the headlines every day. What is Gennady Bognenko to say? How are we to respond when we see suffering, seemingly meaningless suffering, suffering that we don't deserve? It's not hard to see why i started with that story, is it? It's not hard to see the parallels with Job, the figure we're introduced to in 1 verse 1, a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Uh, Job was a real man. Uh, That much is plain from the rest of the Bible. Check out Ezekiel 14 later, and you'll see that he is as real as Noah and Daniel. But apart from that, we know very little about him. Uz was probably somewhere near Israel, maybe Edom. Uh, We don't know when he lived, though people have various ideas. But there's one thing the author is determined to get across about him. Verse 1, that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil, even more than Gennady Mopnenko. Job was a really good man. God himself gives us this verdict of blameless twice later on in our chapters. Not that Job was sinlessly perfect, but he was a committed God-fearer. He was so anxious to do what was right that verse five, when his children had feasted, he would send and consecrate them and he'd rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For he said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. He was a righteous man. He was someone who didn't do anything to deserve the suffering that we're about to see him endure. And yet he did suffer. And as we'll see, he suffered terribly. If you were Job, how would you respond? A Job is a book that has become a treasure to many of us because it wrestles with this issue of how to to respond to apparently meaningless suffering. A suffering where there seems to be no cause, nothing we've done to deserve it. And we don't have to look very far to see the relevance of that book. Uh, they there in the headlines. It's there in the lives of so many of us in this room, mourning the loss of loved ones, feeling like we've lost all that we have, maybe as the cost of living rises, and we feel like we've had all the possessions that we once enjoyed taken from us. On Friday afternoon, a couple from the morning congregation had a Thanksgiving service here for their second son, who had been stillborn. A few weeks ago, we held a service here to thank God for the lives of those taken from us during the COVID pandemic. It's not hard to see the relevance of this book. And whether you're here as a Christian or not, all of us live in a broken world where suffering is all around us. Some of us feeling that pain now, and even those of us who know nothing of it will face it one day. All of us need to know how to deal with it. And it's difficult, isn't it? Of all of the hard decisions, the hard things to work through in life, thinking about suffering is especially difficult, which is why we want to hear God's wisdom on it. We're spending this term looking at the wisdom literature, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs, books that God has given to us to help us to live wisely in his world. And we're beginning with God's wisdom on suffering. Job. Uh, in fact, even before we decided to look at the wisdom literature, this term, I'd suggested to William, our rector, that it would be good to look at Job. I'd, been done, a bit of, I'd done a bit of reading on the book. I'd enjoyed seeing what I'd, I'd been seeing in it. But more than that, I'd been struck by how the COVID pandemic had caught so many of us off guard. I don't mean that we hadn't predicted it. Of course, no one had. No one had a decent idea of what was coming. Uh, but the Bible gives us loads of resources to deal with suffering. And many of us weren't ready with it. We hadn't spent enough time hoarding the Bible's wisdom. Which is why we're going to spend the the coming weeks learning how to live wisely in God's world. And in Job particularly, to live wisely in response to suffering. Job, the Bible's book on suffering. God's book on suffering. It's worth noting that Job is not here to answer the why question why do good people suffer Uh, that is the question that exercises its main characters it is the question that job has but it's not a question that we get answered directly in the book it's not even a question that the book sets out to answer i think the question at the heart of the book the question that we get introduced to in its opening pages is a wisdom question The battle between Job and his friends, which we'll see next week, is ultimately a question of who has wisdom and where you find it. Like all the wisdom literature, it asks how to live wisely in God's world. And in Job, that question particularly around suffering, how should we respond to suffering? Indeed, that is the question that we're confronted to in our opening chapter. Point one on the handouts, how will the righteous respond to suffering? Let's pick up the story from verse six. Verse six, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. We're given one of these rare glimpses into heaven and we see God's parliament in session. A parliament's probably the wrong word. God governs. Uh, But he has this host of the sons of God, probably angelic hosts, supernatural beings to whom God has given particular authority to exercise some kind of role in his universe. And strikingly there, we see Satan, the devil. In fact, Satan is less his name than his title, the Satan, or as the footnote says, the adversary, the accuser, the opponent. That is to say, the devil has been given a role within God's universe to act as an adversary, opposing God and his people. A bit like the leader of the opposition in parliament, specifically tasked with questioning and scrutinizing the work of the government. Of course, there's plenty of differences. I'm not trying to make a political comment when I compare Keir Starmer to Satan. But Satan has that kind of adversarial role in God's world. And it is in the context of that role that God shows off his prized servant. Verse 8, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Uh, to God's flaunting of Job's godliness, Satan responds with contempt. Of course he honours you, he says. Uh, You've given him all of that blessing. And he has been given a lot of blessing, hasn't he? We saw from the beginning of the passage. Seven sons, three daughters in verse 2. A Seven and three are good, strong biblical numbers. It's a lot of children to have. Uh, and it's ref- those numbers are reflected again in the livestock, aren't they? 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, plus the oxen and the donkeys. He's not going to have any trouble finding food or transportation, is he? To put it in modern terms, this is the guy with the picture-perfect family. He's got a regular home delivery slot from Waitrose, and his massive garage is filled with a private motor collection. To say that he has an estate is not just a reference to his car. Satan says, of course he honors you. You've given him all that blessing. You can almost imagine the dismissive wave of the hand. But if you were to take it away, God, he would be filled with hatred of you. In essence, Satan is accusing Job of being a fair-weather Christian. All well and good when the sun shines, but the moment that the clouds gather, the moment there's a hint of rain, the mood will change. His enthusiasm for the Lord will wane, and his whole commitment to God will fold as quickly as the Brompton cycle of a fair-weather cyclist. And in one of the Bible's most baffling moments, God gives Satan permission. Verse 12, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. It's worth noting here that Satan needs God's permission. He is, if you like, on God's leash. He's not an equal to God. On the contrary, he's only able to do what God permits him to do. He is, as Martin Luther put it, God's Satan. But still we might be wondering why God doesn't stop him, why he lets it happen at all. Uh, The why question, which will occupy lots of airtime in the chapters that follow. But as I said, I don't think that's the question this book focuses on. It's certainly not the question these chapters focus on. The central dilemma of the passage is what will Job do? how will the righteous respond to suffering? If Job is so great, how will he respond when you take everything from him? And I wonder if we feel the tension of that question so much more strongly because the challenge bites so close to home. If Satan made that same appeal over me, would he perhaps have a point? We're ready to praise God when the sun shines. But when things get tricky, we're prone to grow bitter. Sometimes I only need the faintest whiff of a metaphorical cloud on the horizon to start to feel grumpy. We grumble because we feel that if God really loved us, things would go more smoothly. And maybe we've been cautioned against the prosperity gospel, that idea that God wants us to be happy and wealthy and rich in this life. If we're not... If we do believe the prosperity gospel, then these chapters quickly expose that false teaching for the dangerous falsehood that it is. But even if we're resisting the prosperity gospel, I think we can be vulnerable to a form of it the idea that God generally wants us to have a comfortable uh, existence, and maybe not fabulous wealth and perfect health, but well, something in that direction. That after all of our sacrifices for the gospel, if we're Christians, That God owes it to us, at the very least, to be happy. Don't we sort of expose that we believe that sort of thing when we are surprised by hardship? Demonstrate a kind of belief in that sort of thing when we are offended by the trials that come. Maybe you're aware of how much your relationship with God would be strained if the comfort that you've grown used to were taken away. Or perhaps you're feeling it's lost right now and aware of the strain. Jesus clearly warned us that hardship would come, and yet many have fallen away when the storm hits. How closely we feel the challenge of the accuser, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. How would we respond if we were Job? Are we ready for the storm? While Job was ready, Uh, point two, the righteous bless the Lord, even in the storm. Uh, Verse 13 begins with that ominous foreshadowing. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. The introduction that doesn't become relevant until we've had three terrible messages, bringing news of foreign invaders and natural disasters. The Sabaeans take out the oxen and the donkeys and some servants. Lightning takes out the sheep and some servants. The Chaldeans take out the camels and some servants. One by one, the blessings listed in the opening paragraph are taken away, climaxing in that harrowing news in verse 18. While he was yet speaking, there came another, And said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. A few years ago, this would have just felt like a fairy tale, wouldn't it? But isn't this remarkably close to the lived experience of so many today? Natural disasters, foreign invaders. Isn't that COVID-19 and the invasion of Ukraine? Or Afghanistan? Or countless other natural disasters and foreign invasions that simply haven't been big enough to make it into the headlines. And yet there's something especially tragic about the cumulative impact of these tragedies announced to Job all on that single day. Verse 13, now there was a day. And then one after the other, the messengers arrived with their terrible news. And don't you want to weep as you read it? To rise up with Job in verse 20 and to tear your robes along with him and to fall on the ground. And and there's the puzzle. Verse 20, and he worshipped. Is that what you expected? Didn't we expect something else? I cried out maybe, complained, cursed God to his face. But rather, verse 21, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Far from cursing God, Job blesses him, and he gives us the reason. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. In other words, I didn't bring anything to the table. God did. Everything I had was always from God. Christopher Ash has written very helpfully on the book of Job. Let me strongly encourage you to get hold of his uh, little book, Out of the Storm, very easy to read, very helpful on Job. In his longer commentary on Job, he explains Job's comments here like this. And he says, by the nature of the Godness of God, he gives. And it is therefore entirely his prerogative to take away as he sees fit, as and when he chooses. Job's recognition of the godness of God is crucial. Christopher Ash goes on, he says, In the moment of his loss, Job first thought, his first thought is of the God who had first given Uh, there's the response of the righteous. Not cursing God to his face, but remembering the God who had first given. And so far from cursing, Job is able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. But alas, that's not the end of the story. As chapter two begins, we get another glimpse into the court of heaven and an almost identical rerun of that conversation from chapter one. The assembly is gathered, the adversary, Satan, turns up and God shows off once again. Have you considered my servant Job? Only this time, Satan bemoans the fact that God's leash was too tight, that he, Satan, was prevented from touching Job himself. 2 verse 4, Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he'll give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh and he'll curse you to your face. He can give up all his belongings says Satan, but if you let me take his health. And shockingly, he is again given permission. Verse six, the Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your hand only, spare his life. And so we get these horrible sores that cover Job's body and an inconsolable itch, which prompts him to scrape himself with that broken bowl and to cap off all the misery of his life falling apart. There's Job with his body having given up on him, with symptoms he can't do anything to relieve. By the end of verse eight, he's sitting in ashes, so close to death he's almost started the mourning process. Aren't we expecting this to be the final straw? Again, that tension is what will Job do? What will he say? How will he respond? Well, his wife, as she says, verse nine, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. You can see why she says that. But Job is steadfast. Look at his jaw-dropping response in verse 10. He said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? What faith. What remarkable faith. Christopher Ash is helpful again. He says, again, as after the first trials... Job's heart is full of God the Creator, who is the author of all good gifts. All the good Job has received, he received from God. Can he not trust this same God to give him evil, that is, harmful things, and to believe that he knows best? That's Job's faith. And I know we're stunned by the faithfulness of Job. We know it's right, don't we? And we know it's right. And the narrator is determined to point that out to us. At the end of both episodes, we get that verdict. In all this, Job did not sin. Each week, we're going to see a different aspect of the right, wise response to suffering. At least I think we are. Campbell's preaching from next week. He'll be able to tell you if that's coming. But this week, what we see of the right response is faith. Faith that trusts God, even, when, even with the suffering that he has permitted, Job hasn't even seen what we've seen. He hasn't been privy to those heavenly conversations. Just as we in our own lives are ignorant of what's going on in the heavenly court. But Job is ready to trust the Lord, even in his suffering. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Blessed be the name of the Lord. someone might legitimately ask me, is Job really serving as a model for us? We need to be careful when we draw that sort of application. He did the right thing, and therefore we've got to do it as well. It's tempting to do that with lots of bits of the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, but it's a pretty lazy way of teaching the Bible, really. It will often mean that we miss more important applications. And in many ways, Job is extremely unusual. His suffering is greater than any we are likely to face. And we get to see the heavenly discussions here that we won't normally see. But nonetheless, I'm convinced he is being given as a model for us to follow. The whole book of Job is cast in a sort of study of whose response is right. The debates we'll see between Job and his friends are essentially an evaluation of whose way is right. Who has the wise response to suffering? And we'll see the verdict on that at the end. But even from this opening passage, Job is commended. From the verdict of blameless there in verse 1, repeated twice by God, to the verdict at the end of each episode, in all this, Job did not sin. Indeed, at the end, Job's response will be praised by the Lord twice. The central question of this opening chapter is not really about why he suffered, but how he would respond. And Job's response is commended. Clearly, the author's purpose is for us to copy Job. Of course, the fact that that we are here after the New Testament has been written means we need to ask if there's any difference that Jesus makes to this. Whenever we read the Old Testament, we want to see how Jesus has fulfilled uh, what has been written and see whether that has an implication on our application of it. In various ways, which we'll see through the book, Jesus has fulfilled what Job was all about. Indeed, this perfect attitude of Job was exemplified by Jesus when he He experienced undeserved suffering at the cross. We've been thinking about Jesus' suffering all afternoon, haven't we? And we said together those words from 1 Peter on the service sheet, which spoke of God's faithful trust in the Lord, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus perfectly fulfills this attitude of Job. But it doesn't change the fact that this is the right way for us to live. Indeed, just before those verses that we all read together, 1 Peter 2 verse 21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now, Job doesn't just, uh, sorry, Jesus doesn't just fulfill Job's attitude. He exemplifies it and calls us to do the same. He responds with faith like Job, even more faith, of course, than Job. But he hasn't done that to let us off the hook. This isn't, he isn't merely Job for us. He is Job before us. And he's laid the path for us to follow. Which is why when Job gets mentioned explicitly in the New Testament, in James chapter five, he is an example to us, a model for us to copy, a pattern for us to follow. So even while Job is extremely unusual, He's given as an extreme example of the inevitable suffering that all of us will experience. Even God's people, people as righteous as Job. And like in Job, that suffering will often be inexplicable, seemingly meaningless. We'll be unable to see what's gone on in the court of heaven. In fact, the scene in heaven may well be completely different from the one that Job has. We'll be left in the dark, Over the cause of our suffering, but we will still need to respond. As Don Carson puts it in his very helpful book, How Long, O Lord, when we suffer, there will sometimes be mystery. Will there also be faith? We won't always know why. We won't normally know why. There will sometimes, often, be mystery. Will there also be faith? Will we have, as our first thought, the God who has first given? Will we trust that the same God who has given so bountifully knows best when he's giving us that which seems to us to be harmful? Will we say with Job, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Gennady Mugnenko is confronted with those questions at the moment mourning the loss of his daughter. Many of us will be grappling with them at the moment. All of us, whether we're Christian or not, will be confronted with these questions at some point in our lives. How are we going to respond? Are we ready for the storm? Some of us are nodding along in beautiful eagerness to follow this great example in Job. But if we've tasted even the faintest hint of suffering, of real suffering, I imagine that we are asking the question at the bottom of the handout. But how? But how? Uh, We feel like pigs who are being told to fly. Go on, flap your piggy little wings, which you obviously don't have. How am I supposed to fly? How am I supposed to respond like Job? We know that God is a good God, that it is his prerogative to give and to take away, that it's his right to do what he wants that he is the good giver whom we can trust. But however much my mind is reconciled with the goodness of God, suffering kidnaps our emotions and refuses to leave us in peace. How am I supposed to make sense of my suffering? If God is so good, so just, so perfect, how am I to understand the existence of innocent suffering? I said this book isn't here to answer the why question. I still don't think it is. But we are left with a why question that stops us from a full-throated echo of Job's words in 121. And if you're asking, but, but how, don't worry. There's a sense in which even Job is asking that question. Even in chapter 3, we'll see, if you read on, Job has got a lot of wrestling to do. Read on, please. Indeed, even if you were nodding along thinking, yeah, I'll respond like Job, if you think you're going to be fine when it comes to suffering, let me strongly encourage you to read the rest of this book. Suffering is not a simple issue. It requires a lot of wrestling. In fact, let me encourage you to read on, even if you're not a Christian. All of us need an answer when it comes to suffering. Well, come and see God's answer, God's book on suffering. The Bible doesn't shirk the difficult questions, but gives honest answers from real people, indeed from God himself. You might find some surprises here. You'll certainly find wisdom. For now, we're going to finish by singing Job's words in a song that has expressed them very well. Blessed be your name. It's a song that beautifully expresses this right attitude of Job, but I'm aware that some of us might feel unable to sing it now. If that's you, please don't worry, we have got lots more to see. But maybe many of us will be ready to sing it, at least as an expression of intention, a commitment to make this choice in the future. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, blessed be your name. You give and take away, my heart will choose to say Lord blessed be your name and here's my prayer that by the end of the series we might be able to sing it again with even stronger faith Job-like faith Jesus-like faith let me lead us in a prayer before we sing Our Father, we thank you that you are God, that you are a good God and that you are in control. And we pray that as we wrestle with suffering in this book of Job, that as we wrestle with suffering in the world in which we live, you would help us to trust you, to have faith, a faith like your servant Job, more than that, faith like the wonderful Lord Jesus himself. And we pray it might enable us to say, blessed be your name. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.